You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin Story Machine podcast, an exclusive limited series exploring diverse aspects of children's literature. Hello, my name is Porik White, and I'm the director of the Master's Programme in Children's Literature at the School of English, Trinity College, Dublin. And joining me here today are three students from the Master's Programme, Rory Codd, Ellie Lawler and Aoife Sheehan. Rory, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself first? Sure. Hi, I'm Rory Codd. I'm mainly interested in children's detective fiction, picture books, graphic novels and visual novel video games. And I'm currently researching Lemony Snicket's detective series, All the Wrong Questions, and its relationship to the Harold Boyle subgenre for my dissertation this summer. Thanks a million, Rory. Uh, and Ellie, you're also very welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Pork. Um, so I'm Ellie. I have a wide range of interests from fiction to nonfiction, historical to contemporary. And for my dissertation, I'm looking at picture book responses to the trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'm going to be talking a lot about one of my other interests, though, which is maps and mapping in fantasy cities. Brilliant stuff. Thanks for that, Ellie. And Aoife, would you like to say hello to everyone listening? Uh, hi, I'm Aoife. I'm d- interested in dystopian literature, young adult novels and food in children's literature in general. Uh, I'll be looking at food in The Hunger Games and other dystopian novels for my dissertation this summer. I'm also really interested in the uncanny and gothic literature. Fantastic. Okay, so welcome everyone. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about everything related to the city and children's literature. So the the history of the city and literature, I suppose, is as lengthy and as rich as histories of literature itself. Uh, One of the oldest surviving epics we have is the story of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh leaves the city and goes to the underworld, fights monsters and then rebuilds or comes back to the city and takes control of it. The city is also central to Homer's The Iliad, so the entire story is based around the sacking of the city of Troy. Indeed, some of the earliest children's literature engages with ideas of the city. And very often, these are 17th century school texts for younger readers that document maybe the founding of Rome and so on. But the modern city, so what we consider it today, really comes after the Industrial Revolution. And this is a city that becomes the epicentre of commerce, of political life, of capitalism and consumerism. As a result of these associations with apparently adult discourse, the city is often viewed as a space that's not necessarily for children. And yet we do have so many books over this almost 400 years of children's literature where we see children in the city space. So... We've got centuries of material that we could analyse today, um, from the works of James DeLapp and Dublin to Francis Hodgson Burnett and London, right through to Nicola Yoon's New York. So how do child protagonists and how do child readers navigate this urban space? And in what way does the urban setting impact on this reading experience for younger readers? Today, we're going to try to answer some of these big questions talking about children's literature, so everything from picture books and illustrated texts right up to young adult literature. We'll talk about a range of issues, looking at real cities and the exploration of the past, uh, fantasy fiction and maps, as well as nature and the environment. But I want to begin by asking this panel of experts a question about their own reading experiences, maybe from their own childhood itself. So 
what books featuring cities have stayed with you? And why do you think that is? Ellie, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so the one that pops into my head is probably London in Cassandra Clare's The Infernal Devices series. Um, it has a really heavy steampunk vibe, which uses this like imagined aesthetic that everyone's like really familiar with, but actually has never technically existed, which I just think is a really interesting phenomenon to have developed. Brilliant. Um, maybe Rory, what about you? For me, it's probably uh, City of Chicago in Blue Balliot's mystery novel Chasing Vermeer, uh, which I read when I was younger. Um, I think it's one of the first books I remember where um, there were child protagonists engaging with public spaces in the city, so places like museums and libraries and universities. Um, and I thought that novel also did a really great job of depicting Chicago as a city that's kind of dedicated to art and architecture and very much at the forefront of its goal. Brilliant. Yeah, and there's so much we could talk about in relation to museums and galleries in children's literature. They, they seem to dominate a lot of these city representations. Um, Aoife, what about you? What has stayed with you and why? Uh, definitely Dublin in Derek Landy's Scullery Pleasant series, which was a great favourite of mine as a child. Um, and it was just really fascinating for me, like seeing places that I knew in and around Dublin transform these like magical and fantastical settings definitely had like a huge impact on me as a child. Yeah. And Dublin has definitely featured um, in lots of contemporary Irish children's literature in particular. Um, but then I suppose saying that uh, there is this idea that really representations of urban spaces in Ireland only come about kind of in the 1990s or the Celtic Tiger period and so on. But we actually get lots of representations of urban spaces in Irish cities um, way before that. I mean, I'm thinking of Patricia Lynch's The Bookshop on the Quay or even, you know, what's considered one of um, the, the very first uh, Irish children's texts um, by James Delap, um, The History of uh, Harry Spencer. But um, for me, definitely, uh, Growing up, reading the books of Carolyn Swift um, really stayed with me. Uh, she had this whole Robbers series set in Dublin, Robbers of the Town, Robbers on TV and so on. Uh, and definitely that was my introduction to uh, Dublin as a city. Um, but also she, she had lots of books like, uh, what was it, the Bugsy series, like Bugsy Goes to Limerick and Bugsy Goes to Cork. And uh, so we had these urban representations a while back. But Carolyn Swift was this amazing character. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of her before, but um, I mean, she set up the Pike Theatre with her husband. The guards raided it in the 1950s because of so-called indecency on stage. Uh, it had the premiere of um, Beckett's Waiting for Gatto. Um, so yeah, she's a fascinating character and wrote for Wanderly Wagon um, and wrote lots of stuff for RTE uh, throughout the decades. But yeah, um, her books on Dublin, it was my point. <laughs> and that's what stayed with me from my childhood. Um, Aoife, do you have any more thoughts on uh, Dublin as a city? Because this is obviously something that interests you. Yeah, well, one of the things I'm really interested in is how the city space like interacts with like the history of the city. Um, so like Dublin is a great example for this. Like, oh, it's obviously a very old city that's full of history, but it's also like a really visible history that we have in Dublin. Like there are so many like prominent monuments and old buildings, even like the widespread commemorations we've been having the last few years of like the Easter Rising and the War of Independence or even like we're Trinity students, right? We have like our own like ghost stories around our campus. 
uh, like there's so many like kind of stories of the past and history that have such a visible presence in Dublin today. So I kind of want to ask uh, the others, uh, how does knowing this history influence how you experience or uh, think about the city space? Um, I mean, I suppose for me, it's shown me how multifaceted the city space really is. Um, I mean, when I was younger, if you said the word city to me, I mostly just thought about like massive skyscrapers and shops and very much the commercial side of it. Um, the city strictly in a physical sense. But now I think I'm a lot more aware of the cultural significance of cities, um, especially Dublin, having studied in Trinity College, I'm much more aware of its like massive literary. Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting as well. But for me, it's definitely a way to bring us closer to the living history of past events, I think. Um, I remember getting a tour of RCSI um, and being shown like the bullet holes in the front of the building, the building from the 1916 Rising that are still there. And that physical representation that still exists at that time, like really gave me an emotional connection that I didn't have before um, to the events. And I still notice them every time I pass the building. So I think seeing that connection between history, memory and emotion in a lot of the places around the city is really cool. And I think there's a lot of um, walking tours in cities that sort of bring you around to point those things out to you. Like I know they do like 1960 ones in Dublin. I think they're pretty common in other places as well. Yeah, and I love I love this idea of um, kind of the layers of history that are there in children's literature too. You know, um, and thinking about what you're saying there in terms of 1916 and commemoration, uh, I've always liked Siobhan Parkinson's Amelia books, Amelia and No Peace for Amelia. I mean, they're from way back in the 1990s, but they're they're all about exploring this history um, for a contemporary reader. One of the things I, I think is probably worth noting, obviously, that we're we're in a UNESCO city of literature too, and it's the the literary history as well as that kind of political and violent history that is on every street corner. Or you know, we've got Oliver Goldsmith at the front of Trinity. Um, or when you think about uh, what I mentioned earlier, Patricia Lynch's The Bookshop on the Key. That's that's got a, a, um, a ghost of Jonathan Swift, you know, walking the streets there. So. Uh, I love I love that feel of of that book as well. The atmosphere that's created that the children are part of this literary history and they have to find their own story to tell within that too. Yeah, I think like knowing these different like layers of history, I know for me it definitely changes the way I view it. Um, like I think there's something really special about like like being able to walk down a particular street or like a particular building and like knowing like the things that have happened there get this like you know with buildings like the GPO or Collins Barracks in Dublin um but also like as you're saying like it's such a literary city and I think there is such a strong engagement with the past in like children's literature too um like Jared Whelan's um The Guns of Easter say for example like pops into my mind. Yeah so the, this engagement with the past um we see it in children's literature set in Dublin um but what other children's texts are doing something similar uh with this engagement with the past? Um, although it's not set in Dublin, there is one book in particular, I think, presents a really interesting relationship between the city space and its history. Um, this book is set in Barcelona. I don't know. Have any of you ever been? What do you remember about it? Uh, yeah, I was in Barcelona, I think, in 2009, just for a weekend. Um, I remember walking through Las Ramblas. I remember that was really busy. Um, and I remember going into the Gothic Quarter and taking in all the architecture, looking at the stonework and the arches and things. 
a very different city to Dublin. Yeah, I think I was there just once um, on a TY school trip in about 2012. Um, and mostly what I remember is we went to see um, Dali's Gothic Cathedral, which obviously makes a big impact on anyone who goes to see it. And then um, we also walked around Park, I can't say this now, Spanish, Park Guel or whatever it's called. Um, and just like the beautiful, like, formations of the way that like the park itself is structured and then being able to see it across the city I thought was like really cool. Yeah I was there just a few months before the pandemic actually um it wasn't a very academic trip but I do remember some of the like stunning architecture um, and it definitely gave me an appreciation an appreciation for some of the places mentioned in the book I'm going to talk about today which is Marina by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Uh, brilliant. I love this book because um, he's best known for his adult writing, isn't he, Aoife? Um, what's it? The Cemetery of Forgotten Books, that quartet. Um, so that's that begins with The Shadow of the Wind from 2001. I remember that was one of those books where, you know, my friends were texting me uh, going, oh, do you want to go out tonight? And I was like, no, I'm sitting in to, to finish this book. You know, when you get one of those books in your life, that was definitely one of them for me. But um, uh, yeah, so M Marina, um, tell us a bit about that, Aoife. Yeah, so uh, Zafan is actually more widely known as a Malo writer, particularly for uh, that uh, Cemetery Forgotten Books quartet. But he started his career writing a lot for young adults. Um, Marina was actually the last young adult novel he wrote. I think it came out maybe two years before The Shadow of the Wind. Um, and it was quite like a transitory book for him. Um, he said that like even while writing it, he knew it would go he sorry, he knew it was going to be his last book in the YA genre. I think he described it as taking on like a shade of farewell while he was writing it. But at the same time, a lot of the elements of his adult writing began to kind of form like during Marina as well. Yeah, um, I think Marina comes, doesn't it? Uh, the English translation comes um, much later than The Shadow of the Wind and, and, and that quartet. Um, but uh, yeah, and a lot of the ideas for The Shadow of the Wind and so on can be, it's, their origins can be found in Marina. But do you want to tell us a little bit about, uh, about the book, um, for, just for listeners that may, may not be familiar with it, um, and why exactly is it a standout text for you? Yeah, of course. Well, Marina is a wild ride. I had no idea what it was going to be like going into it, but it really, it just really kind of grabbed me. Um, without kind of any spoilers, it's about a teenager named Oscar, and he's pretty fed up with his life at his Barcelona boarding school. Uh, but things kind of change when he meets the mysterious Marina. She takes him to this uh graveyard where they witness something very strange uh, and they both kind of want to know more and they get involved in this mystery that uh, has been decades in the making. And one of the reasons this stands out so much for me is I think it has a really interesting relationship with uh, time. So the book is uh, narrated by the adult Oscar in like the 90s and he's telling the readers about the events of 1979 from when he was a teenager but even all of these events in the kind of late 70s are influenced by are influenced by the actions of characters um, from like the 1930s and the 1940s. So the past continually shapes the present in the novel and like the consequences of actions are reverberating right throughout history. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's such a such a fascinating text. Um, I'll tell you what, uh, do you want to read some of it uh, for for our listeners just to give them a sense of Zafan's writing? Yeah, of course. Um, so this is an extract from the first chapter. So the novel opens with these lines. 
In the late 1970s, Barcelona was a mirage of avenues and winding alleys where one could easily travel 30 or 40 years into the past by just stepping into the foyer of a grand old building or walking into a cafe. Time and memory, history and fiction merged in the enchanted city like watercolours in the rain. It was there, in the lingering echo of streets that no longer exist, that cathedrals and age-old palaces created the tapestry into which this story would be woven. So that's the opening kind of paragraph. And like, even in those lines, like there's already such a strong emphasis being placed on time and history within that city space. Uh, so what do you all think of that extra? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that passage really does capture exactly how it felt the last time I was in Barcelona. Um, looking around all those streets and alleys, and it really did feel like there was so much history tied up in all those different um, places. Yeah, I like really like the idea of layered history happening in like the same place. Um, and when you were reading that out, it was just making me think of, you know, that scene from Anastasia in the ballroom where like the specters of the old Russian aristocracy come back into <laughs> singing Once Upon a December. And that's just like what it makes me think of, like all these ghostly figures of times gone by sort of existing in the same place. Um, so that's just like what pops into my head. Yeah, I know exactly the scene you're talking about there. Um, so like a lot of the novel, so it's all take takes place in Barcelona, but a lot of it takes place in this particular neighbourhood and it called Surya. This is where um, Oscar's boarding school is. And there's also a lot, it's full of these kind of old and large houses that are kind of beginning to crumble away. They're all kind of fading relics from a different era, from like times where all of these families were like rich and powerful, but a lot of them are empty and even the ones that aren't, like they're all deteriorating. So it's in this, uh, he calls it the desert of Surya, that Oscar actually meets Marina and her father, who are kind of the other principal characters of the novel. So Marina and her father, like they live in one of these houses, kind of one of these old relics. They have this large grand house, but like at the same time, like they can't afford electricity or like any excess food. However, Oscar gets like the detailed version of the family history, including why uh, the father can no longer make money and like maintain the estate. And knowing this history really changes how he interacts with the space. In his first encounter with the house, you know, it concludes with him running away, panicked and frightened. Um, it's kind of foreboding and unsettling the first time he visits but it eventually after he knows kind of the history around it becomes a place of solace and refuge for him so Oscar and is really familiar with the city as a whole and he usually navigates it without problem but time and time again he and Marina kind of stumble on another kind of hidden discovery uh, this is the event at the start that kind of kicks off the novel when they come across this obscure cemetery that isn't on any map or even with really haunting locations, like uh, anyone who's read the novel, I'm sure will remember the, that first scene in the Greenhouse. <laughs> uh, one or two turns in the city is all it takes for uh, kind of familiar Barcelona space that they know to disappear and for them to stumble into unknown territory. And it's learning the stories of these places and the people who occupy them, um, past and present, that becomes the key to like uncovering the mystery. So to explore this a little bit further, I want to bring in the concept of the uncanny. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. I have to agree with Aoife. I think this is um, this is a roller coaster <laughs> of a novel. Um, you don't know what's going to come pop up on the next page. It's just wonderful. But right, the the uncanny. Um, I w just want you to stop there for a second and maybe explain to listeners who may not be familiar with this term. Um, 
what it, what it might mean in relation to uh, your reading of the novel. Yeah, so to give um, a very brief explanation without referencing anybody, the uncanny is like when a thing, so a thing or a person or whatever is uncanny when something about it is like not quite right. So like think of like robots or dolls or puppets, like these are things that resemble humans, but they're not human. Um. So the uncanny is basically like something that is familiar becoming unfamiliar. So like I'm thinking of like popular examples of it. One would be Caroline, which is already filled with the uncanny. But then like this is emphasized further in like its stop motion animated adaptation, which uh, anyone I know who has seen it has had very strong reactions to it. Um, And that's largely because of like the amount of uncanniness within it. So to relate this to like um, Marina and Barcelona and Marina the city is familiar to the characters but like at the same time within it they keep encountering the unfamiliar the characters past the hidden histories that pop up transform the space from like a familiar place to a very unfamiliar place so this gives the wider Barcelona setting an uncanny atmosphere which then only like emphasizes the the spookier elements that come into play later like the city space really kind of sets up the stage for uh the, the roller coaster ride that uh, Zafon takes us on. And then, like, another obviously, none of us are, you know, very detailed or very familiar with the details of Barcelona, but Zafon actually does use a lot of real places and locations in his settings. And, um, like, the there's a hospital they visit, there's a station, a train station that has like an important part, and they're all like, you know, real places that you can go to in Barcelona. So he like is integrating the reality of Barcelona with the kind of supernatural and canny elements, which just uh, creates such like an unsettling atmosphere, regardless of one's familiarity with the city. So I think Marina really illustrates the possibilities the city has to interact with history and the past. Um, And we can see these possibilities in Dublin as well. Uh, Next time you're in an old building in Dublin, (laughs) you can just like imagine the secrets that like all of those walls have seen. Aoife, I just have to ask after you mentioned Caroline, because I think that's something we're all so familiar with and so traumatised by. I just want to ask, (laughs) why do you think the uncanny works so well in children's literature? Because we see it so often. Yeah, I think think it really does work well. I think partially because it really blends the barriers between um, like what is real and what isn't or like what's possible. I think it really widens the possibilities of what can happen within a text or a genre and um, particularly for children. Yeah, I find this notion of the uncanny in children's literature, but particularly like the uncanny in relation to the city so fascinating. Um, for me, like as a child, I was always way more interested in like fantasy and fiction worlds. Um, and I think it really works well in that genre because, as you said, like it blends the barriers between what's real and what isn't. Um, and it's something that's used really often in these fantasy and fiction like creations that authors make. Um, it works really well with the themes of child characters finding themselves, building friendships and families in these places and just like generally maturing and growing up, coming into their own. Um, you can see this a lot in the series that I want to talk about today, actually, which is the Nevermore series by Jessica Townsend. Okay, uh, brilliant. Uh, Thanks for that, Ellie. Right, so tell us a bit more about Townsend, uh, background to the text, um, what's going on there? Yeah, so Jessica Townsend is an Australian author. Um, The Nevermore series is her first sort of foray into writing books. Um, They're a magical fantasy series for like middle grade readers. 
Um, and there's currently three of the books out. So she has said that she has plots for nine altogether, which I'm absolutely ecstatic about because I'm really obsessed with them as a whole. Um, so <laughs> the first one is called Nevermore, The Tales of Mark and Crow, and it came out in 2017. And it was followed really quickly by the next two, which is Wondersmith, The Calling of Morgan Crow, and Hollowpox, The Hunt for Morgan Crow. So basically, it's about this young girl, Morgan, who was born as a cursed child. Um, she's seen as someone who brings bad luck to everyone around her. She has a really complicated relationship with her family. She feels lonely and neglected. But eventually, she's whipped away to this magical city of Nevermore, where she wants to join a school for special people like herself who have an interesting skill which they call it knack in the story. So like examples of some of these are like dragon riding, being able to hypnotize people, throwing fireballs, which are like all really impressive. But there's also like a bit more mundane ones, which is like being really good at knowing your directions or knowing exactly when your phone is going to ring before it rings or like what temperature your water is at before the kettle boils, like those sorts of things. So there's a big scale and hierarchy of usefulness here. Um, I think what's really interesting is Jessica Townsend in an interview said that if she were to say what her knacks would be, one would be muddling through life or potentially typing 100 words a minute or falling asleep really quickly. So I kind of wanted to ask you guys what you think your knack would be, because I'm pretty sure I know what mine is. Mine would be identifying every single Taylor Swift song within the first second that I hear the note. Like, it just, I know all of them by heart. I really do. That's quite a skill. <laughs> I, it's one I've practiced that and per- perfected over the years. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> a lot of I don't think Ellie that. needs a knack for that. I think she can do that anyway. <laughs> but, uh, if I was going to have one, I would want to have like a perfect memory, just because that would make my life so much easier. Mm, I think I've seen a lot of um, academic people on Twitter talking about how annoying this is lately. Um, I think my knack would be. Being able to know where a publisher is based without having to look it up online when doing referencing. Because um, <laughs> sometimes the name of the publisher gives you a hint and sometimes it just doesn't. And it's very frustrating. So that would be a lifesaver. I'm guessing you're in the middle of essay writing right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very subtle, <laughs> subtle, um, <laughs> subtle complaint there. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know what my knack would be, Ellie, uh, to be honest with you. Um, maybe it's throwing in random... Uh, curiosities about children's books or you know um where samuel beckett's waiting for god or <laughs> premiered in ireland <laughs> I, I don't know. um something like that the, the, the trivia would be a good knack i feel you'd be the perfect like team member for a pub quiz because you'd just be able to like get all the answers that are more obscure so that would be a good one i think um like clearly i have spent far too long though thinking about what i would be like if i was in this universe and what bits and pieces i would take from it but that's because, like, I Nevermore is exactly the kind of fictional place that I would have been obsessed with as a child. And I am kind of nice, to be honest. Um, it's full of, like, fun and quirks, magic and wonder. But at the same time, there is, like, this element of danger introduced into it. Um, and, like, I think this is done through using the uncanny, like Ethel was talking about earlier. I think in the second book particularly, which is Wondersmith, um, Morgan and her classmates take a course that is literally called Decoding Nevermore, how to successfully navigate the free state's most dangerous and ridiculous city. And I'd just like to read you out the description that this teacher gives to a, like a group of 11-year-olds on the city of Nevermore. So I think this is from like chapter eight or something. And he says, now let me tell you what I see when I look at Nevermore. I see a monster, 
a beautiful, terrible monster that feeds us all with stories and history and life and demands to be fed in return. A monster that, over the ages, has grown fat on the unwitting, the gullible, the vulnerable, has chewed them up and swallowed them down, never to be seen again. So while that might come across as slightly melodramatic, I think <laughs> it's not only kind of funny, but it also plants that seed of danger that gets physically represented in the city itself. And like the interactions that ch child characters have with the city, it turns the, those elements of the mundane into something sort of malevolent. Um, if you get what I mean. Okay, so this is clearly a, a series that you're passionate about. These are books that you love. Um, but I want to know a bit more about, you know, why that might be. You know, what is it about this book or these books that sets them apart from other books set in the city? So for me, it's not only the city itself, I suppose, but the use of like maps and the physical mapping of the city in the series. Um, I've always loved a book that has a map. Like that's a surefire way to get me invested in this fantasy world that you've created is to put a, like a drawing of a map on the first page and then I'm sold. Um, but in the second book in the series, there's loads of maps in the plot as well. Uh, so during this navigation class that the students take, they're introduced to one of my favorite like uses of a map in a children's text and it's called the living map. Um, so this is a miniature real-time mapped version of the city of Nevermore that includes microscopic people and like tiny little cars and public transport, mirrors the traffic accidents that happen, the weather movements that come across the city, like all in real time with only a few seconds delay. Um, this was possibly the moment that I truly fell in love with these books. Like I just think that that idea is so ingenious and it's just begging for like a Lego version, like once it's finally made into a movie franchise, like all kids across the country are gonna be buying like versions of Nevermore and like building it up, which I think is really cool. Um, but there are also other like handheld maps that are handed out um, during like the plot and it helps people keep track of some of the more dangerous elements of the city. Um, I suppose if I want to explain these dangerous elements, I kind of want to backtrack for a second and talk about something called nonsense literature, which we've covered in class as well. Yeah, I remember um, like we did touch on this in like our course. But I also think that you have a better understanding of it than I do. So could you maybe like give us a quick recap? Yeah. So nonsense literature is something like everyone has definitely come across. It's just that you're not really aware of it. Um, I think the best examples for most people's understandings are Alice in Wonderland or for anyone who knows his poetry, the works of Edward Lear. Um, but basically it's this combination of something that's incredibly literal um, and then putting it with something that's equally ridiculous. Uh, so say, for example, um, I turned around and said, oh, it's raining cats and dogs outside. And when you go and check, there are actual physical cats and dogs falling from the sky. But like you turn back to me completely unruffled, like not bothered by this and just say, oh, it would hardly be raining lions and tigers <laughs> as if that would be ridiculous. But this situation is completely fine. Um, so that's kind of like what nonsense literature does. Um, and there's a lot of this used in the construction of the city of Nevermore. So I'm going to use one particular example here, which is something called a trickpy lane. So these are basically streets in the city that have a trick attached to them. So when you enter them, something happens maybe halfway down that affects you. And they're ranked in severity and put on these maps so people know how dangerous they are. Um, so the, the ranking level they have is like three levels. So the first level is pink and it's for a nuisance level trickery. So like one of these might be, you could be dangled upside down by your ankle. 
Um, red is for high alert danger. You could be trapped in a flood of sewage water or find yourself uncontrollably throwing up. And finally, you have black, which in typical dramatic form for this series um, means death upon entry. Um, so you have these elements of nonsense literature, which combine the literal with the ridiculous, also being used with the uncanny, which is the familiar made unfamiliar, as Ethel was talking about earlier. So you can see how they're similar and why they work so well together. Um, and you can see this in the fact that not only are these streets varying levels of dangerous, but um, throughout the course of the story, like they can also move location without warning or change the severity of the trick without warning. And so someone walks down the street and then like discovers that this um, like trick or location has changed and then the maps have to be updated and recirculated. So I think it's a really good way of stressing that as soon as a child character gains the confidence in navigating the city space, it actually physically morphs and changes around them to keep them off balance. Um, but it's, it's not only that, it's kind of like interesting to see what's included on these maps, the changes that are made on these maps. And then like Aoife was mentioning earlier about Marina, what's excluded and left off of them. Because um, you were mentioning how like Oscar and Marina kept stumbling into places they didn't know existed. And how that changes the story as well. So I just think that that's kind of cool. So Ellie, I have to ask because you know we've been talking so much about fantasy now, and it's such a popular genre of children's fiction. I think I don't think I've ever seen a list of children's book award nominees that doesn't have a fantasy text on it somewhere. Um, I just want to ask, what what do you think it is that sets Nevermore apart as a fantasy series for children? So what I really love about this series is that it represents like the darker emotions children can often feel but aren't necessarily represented in the stuff that's written for them. But it's balanced really well with this like Douglas Adams-esque humor, which is so funny and smart. Um, so I think everyone should just read them to be exposed to it. You know? cool. So like we both talked about um, the uncanny and like the city space. Do you think that, like, the presence of the uncanny makes, like, the city dangerous for children or, like, makes it more welcoming? Um, I think the function of the uncanny in the children's city space is probably twofold. Um, so it serves to express the alienation children feel in the world. It's like, everything is foreign to them as they're growing up and like, there could be danger around every corner. Um, so using the uncanny to add this element of, perversion to everyday things that we as adults take for granted really helps express this feeling for them and it also gives the, the these child characters the opportunity to conquer those fears or obstacles and it helps them to form bonds with each other and progress their like growth in their story arc. Yeah I yeah definitely I think the, the city space is definitely a site for growth and maturation in so many children's books. Um, I'm even thinking about you know the New York uh, settings New York, that that city of, of possibility where anything can happen, and um, very often the the navigation of the city space, that adult city space, is in parallel with the growth and the maturation of the the young protagonist. Very often through adolescence, I suppose. Um, but the city is also in in these books about New York. Sometimes it is about growth and possibility, and sometimes it's about being unable to grow um, and being able to get out of um, the the destructive nature of the city too. And I'm thinking of Walter Dean Meyer's work in particular, where he documents, you know, growing up in Harlem and so on, um, and explores the experiences of young men from uh, disenfranchised communities and how the city doesn't offer a space of, um, of possibility for a lot of them. But in your own reading, um, 
Is this something we find right across children's books, this idea of the city as a dangerous space for children? Um, you know, the country as a site of growth and development, but but the city predominantly is danger and destruction. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think like in a lot of my own reading, like there's a lot of um, versions where like the pastoral is kind of a safe space or a good space for the child, but the, the urban spaces are kind of like dangerous or like damaging to their development in some way. Um, I think this is a really widespread trope in a lot of children's literature. Um, books like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe kind of come to mind where, you know, the children have to escape the dangers of the the city by like, fleeing to the countryside or being evacuated to the countryside. Um, or even something like The Secret Garden, where like healing is only possible when the children like are able to kind of connect to like the garden and nature. Um, however, I'm not sure how like completely accurate the trope is because like after all, like nearly all cities are occupied are occupied by like hundreds or thousands not millions of children as well yeah I think there can be two sides to the city space for children like one definitely can be that hostile frightening environment but the other offers like a lot of opportunities for great learning and growth that you probably wouldn't get in a pastoral setting yeah Ellie I think that duality you find in the city space is definitely something that's been on my mind lately um especially when looking at the book that I was planning to discuss today um, so like on the one hand, you have the city as a place that we want to explore that holds so much historical and cultural significance and that acts as like a magnifying glass on our technological innovations. But then you also have to consider how cities are, you know, quite often really destructive places as well, especially when you take into account their environmental impact. Um, so with that in mind, I've been looking at Tales from the Inner City by Sean Tan, um, an illustrated short story collection that was published in 2018. So I'm sure most of you have heard of Sean Tan. He's a hugely successful Australian picture bookmaker, author and filmmaker, and he's very well regarded within the children's literature community. And um, Tales from the Inner City, which won the Kate Greenaway Medal, is broken up into short stories with accompanying illustrations. And each story focuses on a different animal and how they engage with humanity, particularly in city spaces. So the book looks like looks at a really wide range of topics like the destruction of the natural landscape, uh, animal abuse and exploitation, and then the impact of capitalism and corporate greed on wider society. And all of those are subjects that Shantan regularly. Yeah, I'm so glad that you chose this book, Rory. Uh, this is definitely one of my favourites, the uh, children's books from the last few years. Um, just absolutely beautiful writing and wonderful illustrations. Um, but, you know, as you're talking there, I'm thinking... Is, is Tan somehow forcing the reader to engage with issues surrounding the environment and, I suppose, society more broadly? I mean, yes and no. Undoubtedly, that's what Tales from the Inner City ends up accomplishing. And I'll be looking at one of his stories a little bit closer in a moment that certainly engages with issues in our society. But in terms of Tan pushing a social commentary, I think it's more the case that this book is an expression of Tan's own frustration with our treatment of the environment rather than like an outright attempt at preaching. I, I read an interview that he gave to the Guardian newspaper last year and he said in the interview that like he writes for himself and the idea of sermonizing to others just doesn't really interest or motivate him in his work. And I think I can understand that way of thinking and that stance because I imagine it creates a lot more pressure once you start writing that way. 
Brilliant. Well, do you want to just read us uh, a short piece from it then, just to give us and the listeners a sense of Tan's work? Sure, no problem. So um, this is an excerpt from the bear story in Tales from the Inner City. And in this story, humankind find themselves fighting a class action suit launched against them by bears for their mistreatment. Deep in our hearts, we knew they were right. Even as we fought our defense with such intellectual ferocity, as if to convince ourselves more than our opponents of the truth mired in self-contradiction, we knew the end was coming. It was time to reach a settlement. We called in every favor and came up with a figure that made our eyes water and our mouths dry. A figure too staggering to ever make public. Your money is meaningless to us, said the bears. You grasp economics with the same clawless paws you use for fumbling justice. Ours was not the only fiscal system in the world, it turned out. And worse, our debt was severe beyond reckoning. And worse than worse, all the capital we had accrued throughout history was a collective figment of the human imagination. Every asset, stock and dollar. We owned nothing. The bears asked us to relinquish our hold on all that never belonged to us in the first place. Well, this we could not do. So we shot the bears. Wow. So funnily enough, that very abrupt line is not the end of the bear story. Um, it continues on and we get to see how humans rewrote the law to uh, allow and pardon themselves for this mass execution. Um, and then how they attempt to move on and brush the issue under the carpet. And inevitably, they find themselves in the exact same scenario when cattle show up outside with lawyers also seeking justice for their mistreatment from humanity. So I know this is a podcast, but I can't possibly look at Chantan without mentioning his illustration, um, since he's so well known for his artwork. So the accompanying, the accompanying image for this story, like all the illustrations in the collection, it's a big double page spread. Actually, for those listening, if you want to see it, you just go to Google Images and type in Sean Tan Bear. This is probably the first picture you'll see in the results. So we see a bear struggling to climb the steps to a courthouse. There's nobody around to help. The only person helping it is its lawyer leading it by the paw. The image is grey and sombre. And the fact that it comes at the end of the story, once we know how this case is going to end, makes it all the more poignant. It really helps to highlight how the city, with its infrastructure and design, really isn't made to be accommodating towards nature and often serves a more utilitarian purpose. It's a space that the bear can only wander through with help from its lawyer. And it really goes to show how inaccessible in some ways this city can be. So this bear story is a great example of how masterful Tan is at creating empathy and remorse in the reader. He establishes the bears as plaintiffs and then positions their exploitation in human terms as a legal rights violation. So we're forced to look at this situation as we would any other widespread mistreatment of a minority plural society. The Bears case ends on a very sudden and dark note, but it really does reinforce the idea that institutional corruption and rigged systems of justice are just as rampant in our society as in Tan's world. And we've seen this firsthand in very recent times. I mean, with the Black Lives Matter movement, and just how much international outcry it took to successfully reach a conviction in the George Floyd case. So in that sense, um, by drawing attention to instances of institutional corruption and unfair systems, uh, Tan's work in Tales from the Inner City is very much topical and relevant. Okay, wow, that's, that's really interesting, Rory. Um, I want to ask you then, so what Tan is doing here 
Is this something that we see right across contemporary children's culture more broadly, do you think? I mean, I think Tan's work is very unique. I couldn't help but think of one other example while reading this particular story. Um, it did remind me a little bit of B-Movie from 2007, <laughs> in case you've seen that, the animated, animated children's movie. Um, I definitely don't hold it in the same high regard, but it does have a similar premise where it's bees suing humans for exploitation. Um, so a similar narrative foundation, but it doesn't have any of the subtle or dry wit that you find in Tan's work. And I think when it comes to ideas of satire, Tan's much much more accomplished at, at that. So I'm not surprised the movie ended up becoming meme fodder online and the likes of Tales from the Inner City isn't a claim to success by comparison. Good example. Um, Aoife, Aoife and Ellie, I wanted to ask, do you, do you, can you think of any other examples of books or movies where we see nature retaliating against humanity? Uh, yeah, some of um, Studio Ghibli's films come to mind, particularly... Um, the 1997 film Princess Mononoke, uh, which like in that film, the protagonists are kind of caught in the middle of a conflict between on one side, like the wild animals, the forest spirits in the natural world. And then on the other side, the um, like industrial human towns. thought of that one, but now that you said that, I can definitely see it. Um, for me, if we're talking about like animated movies, the only other one I can think of right now is open season which is from i don't know like 2006 or 2007 um where like the hunted animals band together to turn the tables on the human hunters um it's a little bit more highbrow than b movie but not quite much so. <laughs> <laughs> no not much um do you think tales from the inner city is specifically aimed at child readers only because it's quite like complicated stuff that you're dealing with here Mm. Um, no, I don't think it's I don't think it's specifically intended for children. Um, really, everything I've read from Shantan, I think, is aimed at readers of all ages, um, especially since his work deals with a lot of very universal issues. Um, he's really talented at taking these complex issues and then conveying them in a way that makes them more accessible, not necessarily in the child reader versus the adult reader sense, but I think more so like topics to think about in a way you haven't considered before. Um, I think he gives us a very unique perspective on these global issues. Um, but with that said, I have been more inclined to consider his work in terms of the child reader, given all of our areas of study. And I think the lasting implication or consequence of work like Tales from the Inner City is that it's going to help create a generation of very socially conscious environmental young activists. And I think we can always do more of that. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, wow, fantastic work. Um, right, so I think we're going to draw things to a close. But before we do so, I just have one final question to wrap things up. Um, so from your reading of the city in children's literature, you know, over the last year or so, or, or over your lifetime, um, what are your overall lasting impressions? Um, is there something about this body of literature that maybe sets it apart from other types of literature? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's an area that's really rich for examination, um, especially for me, I suppose, my area of interest in terms of like mapping fantasy, um, because there's been a lot of work published on the mapping of fantasy worlds and continents, you know, the likes of Lord of the Rings and everything. But there's not an awful lot um, of consideration given just to specific city narratives. And I think that 
have what they could add to the discourse. So I think that's definitely a field that should be further explored more. Yeah, I agree with Ellie. Um, I also think that there's like been relatively little examination of the city and children's literature compared to the amount of work done on like pastoral or rural landscapes. But I think the city has such like a diverse range of representations and children have such varied experiences within it that it's like definitely uh, worthy of further study. And there are so many wonderful cities in children's literature, both real and imagined, that communicate such a wealth of information about the stories they occupy. So I think looking at a story through the lens of the city is a very useful way of interrogating a text. And so a method that produces some really fascinating readings, I think. Great. Yeah. What about you, Rory? Sorry, go on. Um, yeah, I think looking closely at the city and children's literature has definitely shown me it's a really complex and nuanced space. Um, there's so much good that we can attribute to the city as centres of innovation and as social hubs. And of course, then you have like that rich history and culture, art and architecture. But then you find that there can be a darker side to the city as well. Um, I think that in most cases we see this tends to stem from, you know, corporate greed and self-centeredness, um, which are major issues in our society at the moment. So I think my takeaway from all of this is that the city is certainly a divisive space or a multifaceted space, but also a fascinating one to analyse in terms of children's literature. Fantastic. So there we finish up. Uh, so thank you to Rory. Aoife and Ellie for coming along today and sharing their thoughts and we hope you've enjoyed the conversation. For more information on the Master's Programme in Children's Literature at Trinity College Dublin, do check out the School of English website and be sure to have a listen to the other podcasts in this series, especially chapters one and three. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about some of the things we've talked about and the books we've mentioned, please have a look at the ILFD website for additional resources. Thank you for listening. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council Ireland. To learn more, visit www.ilfdublin.com.